Hi, everyone. You're listening to Canada Horse Podcast, and we're your hosts, Nikki Porter and Nadine Smith. We strive to enhance the lives of horse owners by facilitating conversations that make people want to talk. It is our passion for horses and continuous learning that is the driving force behind the conversations here on Canada Horse Podcast. We believe in education over judgment and informed choices over following the crowd. As equestrians, it's important for us to know the whys behind the decisions we make for both ourselves and our horses. But you don't have to go to the extreme to do better by your horse. And the reason why I now follow people who are on this hunt for more ethical horsemanship is so I can bring it into my already developed world and developing world of horses. I want to be competitive. I want to grow as a rider. I want to grow as an equestrian and I want my horse to grow as a horse. But I want to have alternatives to those days that I'm sitting there frustrated and I don't have a coach and I don't have somebody sitting there telling me how to do things so that I don't go to a place that I feel ashamed of later on. Hello, this is episode 48 of Canada Horse Podcast, and we are fired up for this one. Well, at least I know I am. Nadine, what about you? Well, me too, although this might be the first time that you're more fired up than me. (laughs) I think this discussion is worth having a million times over, and since your post last week prompted us to record this episode, why don't you just share with our listeners what exactly we are going to discuss today. Okay, for sure. So today we're talking about an opportunity for a teachable moment after I came across a blog post written by what I felt, and I think it was pretty clear, was a frustrated trainer and teacher that struck multiple nerves for myself as an educator, coach, and horsewoman, for a few reasons. So in all honesty, I read the post and then I laid in bed awake until finally I just grabbed my phone at one o'clock in the morning and starting started writing. It wasn't writing in anger. It was just, it prompted so much reflection around the topics she was talking about, but mostly the tone of the blog post. So In my post, I left out a few details because I still needed time to process them and I didn't want to, you know, turn it into a novel. Um, I didn't disclose what the blog post was, the title of it, or who it was by on Facebook. But I do think that today, for transparency's sake and context, it's going to be important for us to share it here. Yeah, I agree, Nikki. I think that it is important for this discussion. And I think no matter what, I mean, I read this, I woke up in the middle of the night, checked Facebook, read this big thing that you wrote and was like, what's happening? What did I miss? Where did she get this? What is she responding to? (laughs) So I think that I'm not the only one that would have asked anyway. So I think it should be also known that we're not sharing it to have you as a listener go and read it and share in our disapproval of a number of things. And then just what we really do want is for you to read it with a lens of your own values and to question how you feel as you read the blog. There are many readers who strongly agreed with it and and with what and how she stated her point of view. This is not a discussion on if the author is right or wrong. This is a discussion around the tone 
the examples used and the effort to shame in an attempt to educate. It's interesting, Nikki, like what you took out of it and where I heard it coming from you first. And then I read it through your lens. And so when I read it, reread it again, and I go back and I look at it, I'm like, would I have had such a strong reaction if I didn't feel your reaction first? Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, I think that she did write it to invoke a response to kind of get some people talking. Oh, I totally agree. So maybe this is a good time for us to say, we're going to tell you what the article is. And maybe it's a good idea for you to pause this episode right now and go and read it before you hear our opinions. Now, some of you may have already read what I wrote, but this conversation today is actually going in a couple different directions than that as well. So that was kind of just brushing the surface. And uh, we would encourage you, if you can pause and go read the article. It will give you an idea of how you feel yourself about it first, and then come back to us and continue on with this discussion. So I do feel like it's important that we share that we will do our our best to express our points of view with respect to the author. However, neither of us agree with the examples or the tone that was used in the blog. And we would like to address those in regards to leadership in our equestrian world rather than um, just discussing the author herself. We don't want this to come down to she is right or wrong, she is good or bad. We want to discuss how do we properly lead and educate to make an impact versus make noise. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing here also is, you know, you touched on the leadership and the shame and the judgment piece of it. And where I took from it was the ethics, because that's kind of where I've been going on my own personal horsemanship journey. And it really leads itself into the podcast and and where we've been going with this. And we have um, had a strong interest in doing an episode about ethics and horsemanship. And I don't think this will be our only one, but we can't talk about the article and the outcome without touching on the fact that it's about ethical horsemanship, which is something that we both strongly Uh, have strong feelings about. So the article was written by Anna Blake, who is a very well-respected horsewoman. And if you Google things we should refuse to- I think first it's it's good for us to discuss that she put up a disclaimer at the beginning of this post. She has warning, loudmouth, party pooper rant. So she knows that she is expressing a opinion in a loud way and that it is going to rain on the parade of people that do things that she is talking about in this article. She also talks about the fact that she is not some spawn of some sort of virgin birth and can assure us all that she knows frustration. In regard to the to the post, and I think Nadine, you can agree with me here, it isn't necessarily so that what she is bringing up that she believes we should refuse to do with our horses. It isn't that those things are outlandish and that they don't fall under the pursuit of more ethical horsemanship. However, 
in using the strategies that she used to communicate her opinion, those people who use those strategies now with their horses or those those techniques now with their horses are going to go away feeling shamed, less than, attacked, confused. Light was not being shed on how to actually go somewhere else. The only alternative method she gave Nadine was to focus on your breath. And let me tell you, the amount of people who don't know how to breathe their way through traffic. So I was going to say even just loping, right? Right. How many people hold their breath just loping? Yes. So some of the examples, and I would say the, the reason why I came across this article was the most trigger triggering example that she used. And it was because someone else had written a response that was very strong to the fact that she used an example of training a horse (laughs) to be a finished bridal horse. She compared that and she even said, yes, I went there. So she knew that it was going to be triggering for, for people. She said, Mm -hmm. how is this horsemanship? It's more comparable to the slow motion grooming of a young girl for sexual assault, not destroying them all at once, but slowly enough that the worst soul killing control is called an art, ignoring the horse's eyes going back, going black with dread. Yes, I went there. Now I will say Nadine that I immediately, when I finished this article, I scrolled down to the comments to see how it was being received, knowing that the comments on an actual blog post are typically by people who are supporters. They're people that read the articles and they have this ongoing relationship with a blogger. So majority of people were like, heck yeah, great job and really praising what she was saying uh, and saying she was brave for doing so in the way that she did. However, when someone called her out on the use of the example of sexual assault, she used the excuse of using it as saying that she is also a personal survivor of sexual assault. So she is welcome to use that example. And personally, I feel like that is very insensitive in the sense that it's kind of like saying, well, I can now discuss anything to do with women because I'm a woman, Um, but I have not experienced all uh, facets of being a woman on all of the scales. And it is incredibly insensitive and triggering on purpose. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you got it there. It was on purpose. So when I started looking at this, I came up with, you know, the term of shock advertising. And I think that she purposely said something like this woman is a good writer. And I think she purposely went with an example that would be controversial and triggering so that she could drum up some conversation about it. I don't necessarily think that she took advantage of the woman's comment who didn't necessarily agree with her. I think she just said, thanks for your feedback. Mm -hmm. Kind of, I appreciate your comment. Whereas I think if she was a little more open-minded to touching people and helping evoke some change, she might have continued the conversation with the people that aren't jumping up and clapping for her in support. Yeah. I mean, she used several examples in this article and it does, it, it, it evokes shame. It, it evokes some um, uh, regret 
-hmm. You know, because even if you don't necessarily, even if you haven't had an experience of these specific examples that she used, you start looking back in your own mind going, well, what have I done that was wrong, quotes wrong, that I'm ashamed of, that I should have never done, you know, with my horse, for example. So she uses another example of how she was so great at loading horses and teaching them to load into a trailer that she was ashamed to say that she loaded a gelding into, she trained a gelding to get into the death trap. Okay. And that just people should never have put this horse into this death trap of a trailer. And the only reason they wanted it in there was so that in case of emergency that he, they knew that he would load into it. And I just think there's all sorts of wrong with shaming people that have a horse and have a trailer. That's not ideal even when they're trying to do their best, right? Mm -hmm. There are other ways we can go around it to encourage them to say, you know, you really should have a a situation here where you could loan, get a loan of somebody's trailer or have somebody haul your horse in this situation. Let's teach him to load into something that he feels safe in. I don't feel this is going to help him mentally in any way to teach him to load into this trailer. I think you're better off selling this to somebody has goats and just rent a trailer when you need it. When you look at the article and the examples that are used, I think that what got me riled up the most was as an educator, I personally do not feel that educating or expressing an opinion in this way leads to change. I believe that she used the examples on purpose, knowing that they would elicit some emotion and create conversations like we're having right now. Mm-hmm. However, typically what it does is divide people. It divides people into here, here, great job and, and admiration. People who already admire her saying great job. Um, yes, get on your soapbox versus please teach me more because when you shame someone, it closes those doors. It makes them feel like they can't go and ask questions. So it actually shuts down the very thing that she is looking for, which is to better the lives of horses that need it. Not the people that are already on that bandwagon saying, yes, I want to improve my horsemanship. It's the people that we need to reach that are putting the chains under the lips of their horses and, and doing these things that we believe, I know that we believe, you know, there's alternative ways to handle a horse and to consider a horse, but the people that need to be reached are not going to listen. And this is not going to, this sort of form of education is not going to actually reach the people that need it the most. Yeah, that's really well put. The reason I had the response when you just said about putting the chain under the lip is that I haven't like I had an instant flashback to like doing that one time. And I, I hadn't even thought of that in years and years and years. Like I thought when I think about using the chain, I think about over the nose and that even makes me cringe. And then when you said about under the, the, the lip, I was like, Oh, I just like had this yeah, it was like a physical response before we go any further. And I know you have a Brene Brown, um, book that I think it would be really important to share. Can we just touch on the ethics, what ethics mean, how we, where we sit in this, because we're very, 
like very much on a path of trying to be more ethical horse women and really trying to make some change in the world in our own way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Right. So let's start with just what is ethics or moral philosophy? So ethics involves systematizing, defending, or recommending concepts of right and wrong behavior. The field of ethics concerns matters of value or moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. We should talk about here as a way of of bringing in ethics, Nadine, is talk about something that you found on Anna Blake's uh, website in that she is an advocate for the horses and advocating for the horse. So can you talk about that a little bit and let's then tie that into ethics? Okay. So yeah, so directly from her website, she literally says, I am a horse advocate first. I work as a trainer, an international clinician, award-winning author. I train horses and riders, communication skills, and dressage. I write parables about horses in life. So like, this is what she does. So what we found is an advocate is a person who publicly supports or recommends a particular cause or policy. All of us are advocates. All of us are advocates in one way or another, be it for a sports team, for an animal, for rights of any different cause or children or family yeah um you don't have to be an outspoken person who goes to protests to be an advocate you just have to speak up and say what you feel is the right thing and stand up for what you feel is right I did find in my searching for this episode, some qualities of an effective advocate. Okay. Because I think this is important. If you're going to call yourself an advocate, you might want to do it in a way that is very effective. So some qualities of an effective advocate are that they always listen and learn. They're deliberate and focus on long-term goals. They value support from others. They are open and open to different ways to share the message. They have commitment to partner with different and like-minded individuals. They have an ability to look at and respond to positions and an issue. They have tenacity to bounce back from negative responses and they engage the public and stakeholders, okay? So that's how you can be effective as an advocate. I think we're trying to do our best here with our public platform. Mm-hmm. And when we think about ethics, which would be like right and wrong in horsemanship, okay? What's right and what's wrong? When I try to pin that down, it is almost impossible. And not only is it almost impossible to, to put in paper what I feel is right and wrong in horsemanship, it has changed over the last months, over the last years, you just read my mind quite literally. I'm like, it is evolving all of the time, yeah. not only on as on an individual basis, Nadine, for us, but as a community of horse people. Yeah. And like Maya, Maya Angelo has said, when we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm. And we always encourage people to do that. If you have learned a better way of doing something, don't take the easy way out. Don't go along with the flow. Don't do something that you know you don't feel is right just because that's what someone else is doing or that's because what your trainer said to do in the episode that when we talked about with Josh Nickel, if you start to get that pit in your stomach, if you start to feel a little sick, if it keeps you up at night, you know, it's not right for you anymore. And I just do, I feel like people like Anna and different 
outspoken advocates and for example, like um, PETA and different animal rights organizations, like they have a very strong, somewhat closed-minded opinion on what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And I feel personally that there's more of a spectrum Mm -hmm. and we have to have grace and understanding for the people that are not necessarily where we are and see it from, you know, different points of view. Can I share the example of how I feel I have changed in my horsemanship, Nikki? Remember I called you the other day yes, and I was please like, this do. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have all wormed our horses and we've all had a horse that takes it less um, acceptingly than others. And so my horse, who I've had for almost five years, I can't really remember a time worming him that he's had like a crazy reaction, like something that would be, you know, like wild to where I've needed to pin him down and shove it in his mouth. But the last couple of times I've wormed him, I do remember him throwing his head up in the air. I also remember him doing that after getting the strangles vaccine. Typically when he gets the strangles vaccine, he would be sedated because he's had his teeth floated and they shoot something up their nose. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this involves the vet coming, grabbing him by the halter and shooting this up and it's not comfortable. And so that is what I remember from his reaction to something like that. Recently, when I went into a stall to give him a wormer, this horse puts his head into his own halter. Okay. He puts his, drops his head to my knees, puts his nose in the halter, bridles like a dream. There's no issue with me touching his head or his face or his mouth or any of these things. But when he saw me come in with a syringe, he had a physical reaction He instantly started throwing his head, tossing his head around. He even popped up. Like he even reared a little bit. And that that was with me not doing anything. Like that was just me coming in, going to put a halter and like rising the syringe with the wormer. Years ago, I might have then taken him out of his stall, grabbed the halter tighter, jammed the syringe in and shoved it in as quick as I could to just get it over with. This time because I've been trying to listen more to my horse, because we had just had that conversation with Josh, because I'm trying to have more patience and understanding. I was like, okay, buddy, this is, this is not okay with you right now. Okay. So is it that important that we worm you today? No, we're not going to dive worms today. (laughs) So why don't we stand here? And (laughs) why don't we stand here and you just look at this wormer? So that's all he did. So he, I got him. I didn't do anything. I just stood there, let him look at the wormer. A few minutes later, I had him so that he would turn around and he would touch the wormer with his nose. I didn't do anything. I didn't pull his halter. I didn't, I think I took the halter off of him. Then I went around, brushed him, blanketed him, everything. I didn't leave until I felt like he wasn't looking at me. Like I was going to stab him with a knife. Like I mm-hmm. stayed there until he was like calmer and willing to look at this thing. Then I put it away. Anyway, I ended up in the end, I put the wormer inside of an apple and I gave it to him that way. Okay. Um, but well, because I told Mark and Mark was like, well, that's not going anywhere. You need to figure out a different way to get it into him. Uh, so I did, but I don't think that's like the answer for long-term. I think the answer for long-term is like getting him past this fear and, and everything. And but I guess what I'm the whole reason for telling that long story was like, we can change our opinions. We can change our actions. We can go from 
at one point I may have just jammed the wormer in and said the, the end with it and deal with it in six months when I have to worm them again versus this time I'm going to be like, okay, let's take it slow. Let's figure out the problem and figure out a solution. I am so glad you used that example. That is such a beautiful example of little changes that make a big difference in horsemanship. I think sometimes we get lost in the extremist points of view of like, if somebody's all of a sudden going to turn to ethical horsemanship, they're going to throw away their bits and their spurs and they're going to, you know, never, never ride with a saddle again, or they're going to switch to other methods that are so opposite of what we do now. And I think it's important for us to recognize that when we are looking to be more ethical with our horses those changes happen in those small moments like they did with you. And there are extremes. And I do believe that in this article that we're referring to, she is on the side of extreme where she she shamed the use of anything other than a snapple or bitless bridle, whips, and the use of treats without an alternative communication tool being offered other than the use of our breath. So I love that you used that example to show that it isn't, you know, the the path that we're on is not throw away all of your tools, yeah. but to look at how you're handling your horse on a daily basis and how could you consider them as a being more effectively. Yeah. I think even just looking at our vocabulary looking mm-hmm. at the terms we use is a really good start. Mm-hmm. And, and do, yeah, do just those micro yeah. changes that we can make anybody can do in any discipline or any corner of the horse culture. Yeah. You know, we speak to it from our own point of view in our own disciplines, but there are a lot of different disciplines that may use harsher methods. And mm-hmm. maybe somebody is in that discipline And they are starting to feel like maybe they don't agree with certain things, but you can still stay in that discipline, do things differently. Yeah. And I think we found that, right? Do do we want to talk about just that little example of the question we got after the episode the other day about raining? Sure. I just think it's like, how do I, it's hard for me to have this conversation about ethics and also be a rainer (laughs) and not talk about what, what that is. I do think. Nadine, I think this is really, this is the piece. This is the piece that's missing in a lot of these conversations. You are about to be open and honest about something to do with our discipline. It's collective. There are, both of us are in it along with many, many, many others in the world. We are willing to open up and have this conversation and that this is where education lies. Just, this is what I truly believe. Carry okay, on. I'm going to read the thing. Okay, I'm going to read the thing that I read earlier before I say this because then maybe it will help people when they listen to what we have to say, okay? Yeah. This is a an excerpt from a book called The Other Side of Horsemanship by Shelby Dennis. She says, "Now that I've become more aware of the role I played in upholding ineffective and unethical methods of training and caring for horses, I realize that feeling attacked is not the same as being attacked." If factual information causes you discomfort and makes you feel defensive, that is your personal hurdle to overcome. 
not the problem of someone else. The answer is not trying to hide the sharing of information or trying to cover up potential criticisms of commonly used practices that halts any potential for growth and keeps us stuck in a mindset that doesn't serve us. Mm. She's pretty outspoken on, on uh, social media. So I would definitely recommend checking her out. But what happened was one of our listeners sent us a message the other day and another trainer had posted on social media, something to the effect of reigning horses being the most shut down of any discipline or, or something like that, that there were more shut down horses in the reigning industry than any other discipline. And she, her set thought to me was, well, I'm a bit offended by this. I kind of can't believe that he said that. What do you think? And I, my response was basically that in the definition of reigning, it says that the horse needs to be willfully guided. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to get a horse to be um, willfully guided that would lead them to being shut down. And mm-hmm. so when in the definition of the sport, the horse has to be completely under control at every moment and appear to have to no cues, <laughs> yeah. I can see why there would be a lot of shut down horses. And if you look around at those barns and in the different arenas you can see a lot of shutdown horses and Mm -hmm. so I get it and I do think there are other ways to do it and I think there are trainers out here out there who are doing it in a way that allows the horse to have their personality still and allows them to keep their heart and their try and not just feel like they are numbed into nothingness I had an interesting conversation this week as well, and it wasn't around reigning. I do agree with you hundred percent. It is in the definition of the discipline. So if you do look at the highest level of our, our discipline and you have been educated on how those horses become trained to do what they're doing, it is pretty obvious that that, that would be the case. Now, What I had the conversation around was around groundwork. And I had somebody bring a question to me this week saying, "Um, there's a young horse that I know of that is being worked on the ground. And when this trainer is working with this horse, they're they're expecting a hundred percent focus at all times. And if this young horse hears a sound and looks off, It is immediately put to work in a relatively assertive way until that horse is willing to only put their focus on the handler or the trainer and asking me, do you think this is correct? Do you think this is right? And it was very interesting because there is this this line where we say like, we would love, and Nadine, this is part of our conversation with Josh, right? Where we yeah. say like, how, where's the line where we are asking for their focus, but that they're still allowed to be, be alive and, and thriving as, as a being versus just something that is at our every whim when we are present. So I think that was, um, an example where 
it's not just in, let's say, the reigning industry that you can see this happen, but it's in any industry where people are starting to have a higher expectation of their horse and forgetting that the horse is a horse. Yeah. Josh actually made a post on social media a couple of days ago directly about that. And I, that was a big takeaway for me in the demand of attention at all times Mm -hmm. or focus of, oh, okay. You can't just like dominate him all the time, you know? And I think that other, that also brings up with the groundwork, that idea of desensitization, which can turn Mm -hmm. into flooding, which Mm -hmm. can shut a horse down. Mm -hmm. And you can have too much of a good thing in quotations. You know, if, if you're trying to desensitize a horse, that can go down a dark path for that horse. Yeah. And I think that sometimes like a little bit of information is a, is a bit of a dangerous thing because sometimes we latch on to that one thing and then we, that's all we do over and over again. And we close off our minds to like any other Mm -hmm. potential downfalls from doing just that one thing. Yeah. Nadine, do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. I'm open. You're open. Yeah. My question is why all of a sudden did liquids, certain size toothpastes become banned at airports? Uh, 9-11. Okay. What, what were they used for? So why can I, I not take a certain size toothpaste onto an airplane? Must be that it can hold substances that can be used to create things that we probably aren't allowed to say on a podcast, but. Okay. Yeah. So they can be harmful. So if, they can be used har- in- for harm. You can. Yeah. yeah. Right. So toothpaste can be used as a weapon. Well, the container could be, yeah. So there's a point here, okay? (laughs) Do you believe that the company, when they they created this size toothpaste tube, that they would have ever thought it could be used as a weapon? No. So the reason why I'm saying this is because when we bring this conversation back to ethics and back to humans, Mm -hmm. I would like to make the point that humans can and will weaponize anything and that it is not about the tool. It is about the intention. And this week, as we were talking about different conversations that we've had, I was reminded that I had a conversation this week with my coach. He sent me a podcast about spurs. I have yet to actually listen. I'm sorry. I did not listen, but uh, we had a conversation about it and I'll go back and actually listen to it, but it prompted my thinking about tools. And especially after, after reading this article and seeing that she was saying that whips should not be used. And, you know, we use, we both use whips. So remembering that Tools such as bits and spurs were des- were specifically desi- or designed for the refinement of an aid, not the force of an aid. But anything that you place in the hands of a frustrated human can be used for harm, including the written word. This is true. Okay, I get that. I have um, follow up 
points, I guess, in my mind, but I still think there's a, a spectrum or a, um, a process of growth here because mm-hmm. for some reason, the whip part that stopped us, there are things that we would be like, nope, they're wrong. We would never use that tool. Right. But yeah. when it came to the whip, because we still use whips, because we think they are effective in our, our hands and we don't feel like they are going to inflict pain in our opinion, then we're okay with those tools. But if somebody came to us with a bit that had barbed wire in it, we'd be like, nope, not going to use that. There are tools that have been created to elicit pain as a training method. Right. I'm glad you said that because in the horse industry, yes, there are tools that have been created to elicit pain in a horse in order to get a desired result. Are those the tools that we would choose to use based on who we are as people and horse people? No. Right. So that's all I'm saying. I'm just bringing up the point that no matter like that, depending on where you are in your beliefs of what is right and wrong, that's where you're going to fall in that line of that tool isn't, is wrong, or that is something that I'm not going to use. Right. There are, if, if we lined up all the things that were like an obviously intended to hurt something all the way to like a feather, there's mm-hmm. a line of all these different tools and how much pain they can or are intended to inflict. And each person is going to fall in a different line of where they feel this side is bad and this side is good. That's correct. Or right or wrong. So again, for the purposes of this conversation is that you and I, we may have, we may fall in a different line, part of that line. And so would all the listeners. And I think that if our collective intention is to just make the world a better place for horses, you know, mm-hmm. then the idea is not to shame the people that use the tools that we've already decided are wrong. Absolutely. Rather than shame them, what is the best way to educate? So with that being said, (laughs) with that being said, I'm going to bring us to uh, a page in Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book. When I read this book, it is about leadership in the working world. It has nothing to do with and everything to do with horses at the same time. Okay. Now, when I read this, I am reading this today as leadership of people who also lead horses. And I think that is what we are looking to focus on in this conversation is around the fact that if we are in a leadership role with people who own horses and we're looking to better the lives of those horses, we have to more effectively lead the people and we have to have the same values in our leadership with people as we do with our horses. So on page 90 of Dare to Lead, Brene uses a phrase that has actually become quite well known because I think she had it kind of posted in a couple different places, but it was strong back, soft front, wild heart. And when I read that at the very the very first time I read it, I was like, yeah, that feels really good. And then 
I read the definition of what a wild heart is and it resonated even more deeply. I'm going to read to you just a little blurb from the bottom of this page. So it says, for me, that strong back is grounded confidence and boundaries. A soft front is staying vulnerable and curious. The mark of a wild heart is living out these paradoxes in our lives and not giving into either or BS that reduces us. It's showing up in our vulnerability and our courage and above all else, being both fierce and kind. And I think that is what the missing piece to the to Anna Blake's message was in her efforts to say, I believe this. I think she was courageous. I'm not so sure about vulnerable. She no. was 100% not kind. Right. In the name of being there the, for the horses. Yeah. After every paragraph, I think she said, you're welcome horses or something like that. Yeah. Like she was- said, you're welcome, good horses. Right. So as, and, and when I read that, I read that with a tone of cynicism to the people and when I read it, I think you're welcome, good horses. I spoke up for you, but was I effective in what I was saying? Will that way of of addressing um, the people who I'm addressing is it going to land, or is it going to get their backs up and make them turn to someone else, or yeah, or shut them down? Do you mind if I if if I go to one other example here in Brene's book because yeah, I use the word the what I said Brene is the queen I love she Brene is, she <laughs> is the queen so I use the word cynicism and just two pages later there's a great definition here of cynicism and it's and Brene is just absolutely brilliant as we've discovered but in this she's talking about armored leadership. And armored leadership is leading in a way that we are still in self-protection and leading from the ego. So this is hiding behind cynicism. Cynicism and sarcasm are first cousins who hang out in the cheap seats, but don't underestimate them. They often have a trail of hurt feelings, anger, confusion, and resentment in their wake. I've seen them bring down relationships, teams, and cultures when modeled by people at the highest levels and or left unchecked. Like most hurtful comments and passive aggressiveness, cynicism and sarcasm are bad in person and even worse when they travel through email or text. And in global terms, culture and language differences make them toxic. Looking at it and saying, how is how are we looking to teach people who have different ethics than us in the horse world? And I should say that when we say us, us, we are on a path to become more ethical horsewomen. Correct, Nadine? Like that's that's our yeah. that's our intention. Yeah. And I do believe that Anna Blake wrote her article from a place of intention, saying she is an ethical horse owner and would like more people to be ethical horse owners. But when the use of cynicism and sarcasm get brought in 
then you're talking from the cheap, cheap seats. And I feel like there is so much value to this conversation that we want to open minds versus shut them down. We want to make people curious about what, what is an alternative to using even a snaffle bit? What's an alternative? You have so many people who have opinions about bitless bridles or snaffles or, or even the question of why I thought a snaffle was, was, you know, a really soft option, but how do we educate them after we make them curious? You cannot educate after you've made someone defensive. Yes. And as you were talking, it made me think about the danger of being self-righteous. Yeah. And the trap that we can fall into if we start thinking that our way is better and that we are better because we do something in a different way. And oftentimes it's when we learn it, when we are freshly learning something new, that all of a sudden we've learned this new thing. This is the only way and my way is better. And you are less than because you don't do it in this way. I have another a, a quote for you. And this is like okay. exactly what you're talking about. People think it's a long walk from I'm not enough to I'm better than them. But it's actually just standing still in the exact same place in fear, assembling the armor. Yeah. You know, you're right to ask the question then, okay, if we're saying, we're calling this out and saying, well, this wasn't the right way. So yeah, we did say we weren't saying right or wrong here, but yes, we are, we are (laughs) pretty, pretty confident that if we're talking about right or wrong in education, this is the wrong way to educate. Okay. Carry on. It was, it was a way. And Mm -hmm. literally in the first paragraph, she talked about how she hoped that it created some conversation. So I think like that was her intention and, you know, respect to Anna Blake, because she, she's a very, very good horsewoman. But if we're going on, okay, well, what could, could these coaches and trainers do? What can we, as people who have a platform and we're talking to, I don't know, 20 people and my mom (laughs) on this podcast, who else can we what else can we do? And I, and you mentioned making people curious. And I think just bringing up the fact that there are alternatives that could make it better for your horse or that saying sometimes if you take, what is the the way it goes, take the time it takes so it can take less time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just not rushing the thing. It's not jamming the wormer down your horse's throat. It's taking the time to get them used to that thing. Mm-hmm or whatever that situation may be. Sometimes it's just allowing more patience and grace to the horse. Sometimes it's just watching them and not forcing them. Mm-hmm. So you have me on a parent, apparently you have me on a kick of just referring to, to books that I have <laughs> sitting on my table here. Um, you had mentioned Shelby Dennis earlier in the episode, and mm-hmm. I have her book here called the other side of horsemanship. And When I wrote my response to this article, it was with the idea of if we are, if we are supposed to be teaching our horses with patience, what are we teaching equestrians when we are not using that same method with them? And I happened to just open up to page 149 or 249 in this book. And in bold, she wrote, horses take time to learn and they all grow at different rates. 
The same goes for humans. We all have unique problems and it's demotivating and unproductive to compare yourself to others. I love that. And she is Canadian. She's here on the West Coast and she does some big things on social media. And I have said to you before that I would like to have Shelby on the podcast. I'm a little bit scared of her because she's very outspoken. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that she makes some very good points and just, you know, going back to that quote that I had mentioned of hers earlier, that sometimes these things can make us feel uncomfortable and defensive, but they make us think, Mm -hmm. right? They shouldn't necessarily make us feel ashamed or less than, right? There's a difference. I think that wraps it up quite well too. Okay. Go ahead with your next point. (laughs) I was just, I was just going to say that I think if people are looking for places in the online space or, um, different people who are advocating for the horse and just being open about what does ethical horsemanship look like? It looks like being curious about other alternatives and options. And so I was going to say, we have Shelby Dennis, who's, who's very open on social media. Um, we also have Jay Duke who we've spoken about Mm -hmm. having on the podcast as well. And he has a Facebook group called safe horse. And within that he's from the hunter jumper world and he and others within that platform are bringing up different practices that have been done for years and just accepted for years within their industry as being unethical and saying like, maybe we should start questioning this a little bit. Why do we do it? What does it do? What is it looking to either teach or either teach or change? (laughs) Yeah, I think we have left room to continue this conversation with um, possibly Jay and or Shelby about these things because, and I did post a story a while back about different practices that people have done in the past that they now know are not as kind. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like not a whole other subject, but it's something that we could really even expand on, on top of this one. Yeah. Can we end by just talking about how can trainers help ease their frustration with students or the general horse community because they're seeing a lack of awareness around better ways of doing things. Do you mind if we just yeah. touch on that? We can talk about it, but I don't even know where to start. Do you have some I feel suggestions? Like, <laughs> I feel like I do. Um, okay. I feel like I think that working with teenagers helped a lot with this. So I was a drama and English teacher. And I think that that the teenagers probably helped me just as much as the horses in this is that if we're able to offer very much like Shelby has already had stated in that quote is that if we offer people grace for their own processing and learning time, but the next piece of that is just being grateful for where we have caught to in our own Um, opportunities to learn horsemanship to the level uh, of whoever that is. So whether that's us or whether that be someone like Anna Blake or someone who is at, you know, an international level in show jumping, but having gratitude 
for the tools that we have learned, for the feel that we have developed that shows us that there's a better way and gives us an opportunity to then teach that to others because we all start somewhere. And I think it's important to look back and say like, where did I start? Did I start with the best of the best? You know, when I was listening to how Josh learned about horses and how to communicate with horses, what a blessing. He had such a great start. We didn't all start there. Some of us started in, uh, in boarding burns that did believe in more forceful practices or very forceful practices because they didn't know another way or they didn't have as much compassion for the horses. If we can have the open-mindedness and the perspective to look at the fact that we are privileged to have reached the point that we have and we have an opportunity to teach, that is where our compassion will remain. But if we only look at what people are doing wrong and we allow that frustration and cynicism to grow and fester, it does more damage than it does good. It shuts people off from the very people who are able to show them alternative methods. And from a student standpoint, you know, not being a teacher or coach or trainer, I think that the people that I respect most are the people that are willing to learn from others, are the people that are open-minded. We know a couple personally, and I we have been very fortunate to have gotten to know a little bit some of these guys that are at the top of the game, like Andrea Fapani, who created, you know, with Tutal, this whole symposium based on learning from each other and, and being open to different methods. And I think if, if you show as a, as a coach or trainer that you're willing to be open-minded and willing to take a look at the way that you do things and see where you can change that to be better for the horse, to make it easier to explain to students, to un- be able to explain why we do these certain things now versus the way they did it 20 years ago, that it shows that you are willing to evolve. Mm-hmm. And therefore, so can we. I agree. <laughs> okay. I feel like this this podcast episode has been one that I've wanted to do for a really long time and talk about coming full circle because when we talk about these things, it brings me back to the reason why I was so passionate about wanting to start this. And it mm. were it was the things that I would see on social media. I don't know why, but I have this memory of people posting this image, this side-by-side image of this is the way you do your leg straps Mm. and the look on my face when I see people tie their leg straps in this way. And it just gave me some sort of feeling like that is not the way that you show people the way, like the proper way to do something. Mm -hmm. That is the way you make people feel ashamed that they didn't already know. Mm -hmm. Or to make them think that that's the only way, because I've said before, I took all the leg straps off my blankets and bought blankets that don't have any because I don't like them. So, and I live next to a wind farm and it's simply not an option. (laughs) (laughs) And so again, like it just like, that was from the very beginning, those feelings that I had about how people just want to shame by showing this is the way I do it. 
and this is the only way to do it. And Shane, I think, I think Nadine, this is, this is something that gets me is when someone says you should have, or I would never have. And what frustrates me is that there have been times that I have seen, let's, let's use the leg strap example. It's, this isn't, um, isn't necessarily the case, but there have been times that I've seen an example of something that someone says, you should never do this, or you should be ashamed if you do the alternative. And I have been in horses since I was five years old, seven years old. And that was the very first time I had even witnessed it. I have no control over when something comes into my existence. All I have is the control over whether I use it if I believe that it is better for myself or my horse once I'm aware of it. So, oh, I have an example of it. How we tie our um, reins and how we tie our cheek straps onto our bit with the piece of leather. I saw it on Yellowstone for the first time. (laughs) Of yeah. all places. And then, you know, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And people are like, how have you not seen that till now? I'm like, I have no idea how I have not seen that or been taught that up to this I point. I think many of us were in the same spot, especially because, you know, like maybe the way they do it out in the West right. is maybe different than we do it here in the East or we just, you know, we're not real cowboys. I don't know. <laughs> but right. in rip size. Yeah. But so, I think, yeah, a lot of us are literally judging people for something they have zero control over. And that's not and fair. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's, okay. <sighs> this has been a great episode. I'm happy. I feel like <laughs> we could just keep going. Um, there's so much to it. And, and honestly, Nadine, I'm really glad that you and I were able to sit down and have this conversation openly and honestly, and recognizing that, you know, we all make mistakes and we all go against our values in some sort of ways or our ethics in some sort of ways. And we, not only do we need to hold ourselves accountable but we don't need to attach ourselves to the shame of it. We need to look for, okay, if if I didn't know better, then how do I know better in the future? So it's it's people like Anna Blake who, when she says that we should be communicating with our horses to do all these things from our breath, I would love for her to be sitting there and pouring all of that frustration into educating us about our breath and about how that communicates with our horses versus shaming people for doing things that they feel in that moment, like it is their only alternative. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people did comment about that and her response was, you know, like come to my site and figure it out. I have lots of videos and lots of information on how to do that. It's just not super reasonable, like to shout out all of these problems and then just have a, like a singular response to it, Mm -hmm. but there are people to follow. And I think that more than ever, I think it's like, go with your gut, go Mm -hmm. with your intuition and allow yourself to 
just be open-minded and, and to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Nadine. Do you feel better? Do you feel better that you got it all out now? <laughs> no, I don't even think I have it all out. But no, I <laughs> yeah. do feel, I do feel better. I'm glad that we uh, sat down for the discussion and I hope that it, it just opens up more conversations in a friendlier, kinder way. I want, I think it, maybe it's, maybe we should say this, Nadine. I think that what Anna Blake was writing about in the sense of looking for alternatives is not wrong. We should always be looking for alternatives in the, in the effort to consider the horse more, but we also need to consider the humans because they are the avenue. I agree. And I think what we'll do is just in our notes, we'll try to put a couple links in our posts when we make them just maybe some links to some horse coaches, trainers who we feel are doing the part of, you know, considering the horse a little bit more in case anybody is interested in diving down that path. Do you mind if I make one more point? (laughs) I know this is terrible. I feel like people who let's say, let's say there's somebody listening who is very involved in the reining industry and they're listening to this episode, I think there's a fear that these sort of conversations will induce extremisms where people go all or nothing and they're like, okay, this is wrong. I need to now, you know, I need to swear off reining because of A, B, C, or D. We are in this discipline. I am, I have been going through these, these, um, Mm conversations with myself and saying like, what are my values and what is the discipline I've chosen and why have I chosen it? And what is it teaching me? And, you know, how does it allow me to show up for my horse and myself as an equestrian? And what I think we need to be able to express is that you don't have to go to the extreme. You're welcome to, but you don't have to go to the extreme to do better by your horse. And the reason why I now follow people who are on this hunt for more ethical horsemanship is so I can bring it into my already developed world and developing world of horses. I want to be competitive. I want to grow as a rider. I want to grow as an equestrian and I want my horse to grow as a horse but I want to have alternatives to those days that I'm sitting there frustrated and I don't have a coach and I don't have somebody sitting there telling me how to do things so that I don't go to a place that I feel ashamed of later on. That is, I think, the most important reason why all of these people who are putting their efforts into more ethical horsemanship, why it's so important that they do that and why we follow it no matter what we're doing, it gives us alternatives when we feel oh, like I think that's our a backs great are point. against the wall. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up at the end. And, and you know, maybe we didn't quite make that point clear enough when we were talking about the raining earlier. But yeah, it doesn't have to be extremes. We don't just have to have our horses on 100 acres and never touch them or expect anything of them. You know, we can still enjoy the fun and do the fun things and do the hard things. Yeah. So Okay. We're saying goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Let us know what you think.
Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to send us some love is by sharing about Canada Horse Podcast with your friends, finding us on Instagram, and leaving a review is always appreciated. With your support of the show, you are making a positive impact on our horse world. Until next time. Right on, Canada.